Hey friends, Plain Spoken is an initiative to try and explicate the situation within the Methodist world uh, according to kind of conservative principles, a conservative outlook. I'm unapologetically conservative. That's the viewpoint I come at issues with. Uh, but I'm also someone who's concerned with good administration, and uh, we, as we've talked through different annual conferences, have had an eye not just towards theology, but administration. A few weeks ago, uh, uh, Joe DiPaolo, who I've interviewed, and it was a great interview, I like Reverend DiPaolo quite a bit, he um, wrote an article on uh, Chris Ritter's website, peopleneedjesus.net, I think it's .net.com. Uh, Methodist Meltdown in Miniature, a review of the 2023 Eastern Pennsylvania session. You'll remember that Reverend Apollo, he's, his church is evenly divided between right and left, and um, he's planning on serving them and helping them grow in the midst of, he's not leading them through disaffiliation, they're going to be staying in the Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference. He wrote a three-page, no, it looks like a six-page summary of their most recent annual conference session. TJ and I decided to spend time going through those three days and clipping up some of the things that he talked about, some of the things that we noticed, and uh, we're going to do a more in-depth breakdown of what's going on in Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference. Now, as always, the intent of this is not to discourage or degrade anybody. Um, It's more to help conservatives and believers more generally understand the dynamics at play as they come together. Um, We live in a a time where a lot of institutions are falling apart, and it's hard to figure out how much of that is because of the nature of the institution or the leadership or the people who are participating in it, Um, and very rarely are things just black and white. So um, we're going to talk about this annual conference so that no matter what conference you're in, you can kind of recognize some of these dynamics at play and see how these personalities impact uh, the dynamics around this stuff. So I'm going to use Joe's uh, article as a backbone for this, and then we'll we'll go into clips. I think we're going to try and do it chronologically. We're going to cut it off, though, at 50 minutes today, because I got to go put my kids down at two o'clock. And so that's, that's, but we're going to, this will be a two, three, maybe a four-part series, kind of uh, showing the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference. So looking at DePaulo's article, Delegates of the Eastern PA Conference of the United Methodist Church assembled for their annual session on May 18th through 20th, 2023 in Audubon, Pennsylvania, led by Bishop John Schull. The site is not far from Valley Forge, and the session represented about as low a point of morale for this part of the church militant as 1777 was for Washington's army. So there's some uh, history for you history nerds out there. It was a bad time then, it's a bad time now. It was the first time since 2019 the conference met in person, so there were many joyous reunions among old friends. The conference itself, however, was marred by an atmosphere of suspicion, heavy-handed Episcopal oversight, and even a violent incident, which prompted a call to the police. Okay, so um, he's going to talk about uh, specifics pertaining to this, and uh, one of the things that's going to be unavoidable here, there are some annual conferences where the bishop is just an, an enabler, he or she helps the body discern and decide which way it's going to go. This not kind of the bishop that uh, Scholl is. Uh, John Scholl, their bishop, um, let's see, I got his page pulled up here on the Council of Bishops site, 
He's been at it since 2004. He's a resident bishop of greater New Jersey area, but he's also the interim bishop for the Eastern Pennsylvania Conference, which is why we're going to be talking about him quite a bit today. And his uh, personality, his administrative style very much impacts what we're going to be hearing about in this series. I'm going to be presenting some quotes from this book. It's People Throw Things, Rocks at Things That Shine, A Clergy Whistleblower's Journey by Reverend Beth Caulfield. I'm going to be interviewing her uh, tonight, and TJ hates whenever I talk about when I'm doing things, but it should be up soon. She, uh, she served in the New Jersey Annual Conference before disaffiliating um, and, and has a lot to say about Bishop Scholl. Bishop Scholl, um, and granted, I, I don't take DePaulo's word as a gospel or Caulfield's word as a gospel. However, it does seem that there's a certain pattern of behavior on Scholl's part that comes to bear in a big way in, uh, in this particular conference. And so, like, spoiler alert, we're going to note lots of things, but one is that he will hint at uh, dialogue, he will act as though he's listening, but he's going to do his own thing. He already has a plan in mind. There's things that he does, and it alienates him from the people that he leads. So I'm going to read about Scholl's Future of Hope. From its inception, there has been much controversy around Bishop Scholl's Future of Hope. It's a 501c3, which was established during his first year as Bishop of Greater New Jersey. The issues have never stemmed from concern regarding the humanitarian mission work the organization does. The issues have not been that it was designed to provide a legal buffer for the annual conferences, repair mission, and related matters. The concerns that have lent to distrust have been over how Bishop Scholl initiated and established the effort. This is evidenced by the fact that shortly after its formation, Greater New Jersey members asked four questions of law of Bishop Scholl that required rulings by the UMC Judicial Council, which is the denomination's equivalent of the Supreme Court. The council's rulings are found, and she actually quotes it, and uh, we'll put that quote on here and you can pause it. But basically, he formed this 501c3 with the musculature of the annual conference, but without the permission of the annual conference. So this is him acting as like a, a prince of his area and just flexing his Episcopal authority in what ways he wants. Um, connected to that on the next page, she says, perhaps the digest and those of other of the other questions raised served as a hand slap to Bishop Scholl, but there were no other formal consequences given. But additionally, the red flag of nepotism was raised at the time when Bishop Scholl's wife was immediately brought on as an employee of A Future with Hope with significant management responsibilities. So she actually talks about nepotism a good deal in this book, um, which, you know, I recommend. I really enjoyed reading it. The other section that I thought would be worth highlighting was on his, uh, his time in, in uh, Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference. He served there for a time, and of course I'm not able to find it now. So when she was describing this Episcopal committee that met in 2012, it was leaked from the committee, quote, that the committee, because of concerns expressed concerning John Scholl's leadership at the Baltimore-Washington Conference had seriously debated not giving him an Episcopal appointment at all in 2012. Their deliberations went through the night and on well into the wee hours of the morning. Finally, a concession was made, and Scholl was appointed to Greater New Jersey. 
it was when that appointment was announced the next day that the Baltimore-Washington delegates cheered openly that he would not be coming back to them. When you read things like that, and there are several other concerning things about Bishop Scholl in this book, not just his nepotism, but his management style, you get concerned about someone like this leading. Now, when someone is a leader this long in any organization, a false assumption that people made is they must be leading this long because they're really good at what they do. What, what you're going to find in, in the materials presented, the, the bishop tried to strong arm. Here's what he does. He has a game plan that he's already come up with that it's then your responsibility for enacting. And so at this annual conference, he wanted to enact um, this, this uh, uh, strategic direction where he was going to revamp the annual conference because it's not performing well. Scholl is one of these guys that has like a CEO mentality. As he leads the church, he has, uh, he's always reading um, um, Simon Sinek or, or other theorists about how it is that, that group dynamics work, and then he comes with these preconceived notions and then puts together these dream teams to enact it. Um, this is a, an article right here that was published on May 3rd, the EPA considers a future direction despite the loss of some churches. And so this is uh, uh, Bishop Scholl presenting to a group of people here the uh, uh, agenda that he had for this annual conference that he was presenting. And so this is the whole group. Uh, assisting elders received coach approach training in 2022, which prepared them to help pastors lead pathways congregations. into. This is one of those things where there's just constant new terminology, new frameworks, um, this is one of the things people like me got really tired of in the United Methodist Church. There's always some new venture, some new lingo, some new program being adopted, and well, that one didn't work. So instead of like reassessing, you just do a new one. And so, you know, he's been doing this for years. Caulfield served at his side for some time implementing uh, what he wanted, and that was a big source of anxiety at this uh, session here. So we're going to talk a lot about Scholl, unfortunately. I don't enjoy bad-mouthing anybody, and I'm actually going to sympathize with Bishop Scholl. Some, it, it looks to me like the conference really is in disarray and not doing well, um, but he definitely got a lot of pushback. So, uh, TJ, is there anything to, to say before we go on? Do we need to go ahead and look at a clip, or do, is there any other info on the front end before we start diving into particulars? Um, I don't really think so. It was uh, three full days. Um, I believe it was the conference. I say full days. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to go through a couple of clips from uh, the first day, a couple from the next day, and more from the last day. So, yeah, we got quite a bit, yeah. so we're going to have some fun. All right, I'm going to skip this paragraph here because it's um, just in a, a – well, no, I'm not – Opening worship was excellent with an inspiring message from Reverend James Lee and high-quality music provided by the praise team, which continued through the conference. However, most of the worship team, as well as the preachers for both opening worship and the memorial service, were imported from Greater New Jersey, the other conference Bishop Scholl leads. The reason he's bringing that up, I spent some time trying to understand this, there is great concern on the part of Eastern Pennsylvania that Bishop Scholl is trying to merge both of his conferences together. So it, it's, it's sending off alarm bells when all the Pennsylvania people uh, are going, he's not drawing on our leadership. He's not working with what we've got here. 
These optics seem to confirm delegate suspicions that a merger of the two conferences was being forced without much input from conference members, which found expression in a monitoring report Saturday morning. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. We, we grabbed that. So Friday. It doesn't even talk about Thursday, I don't think. Well, maybe... Well, okay, Thursday. Things began badly during the opening business session. Setting the bar of conference resulted in controlled chaos as the limits were changed several times and delegates moved chairs around to squeeze into the approved space. So is that the first clip that we have? I don't even think we clipped that out. That was uh, uh, bad enough already. That's what we were watching before this and uh, going through and deciding whether we wanted to actually clip it out or not. And it was just crazy. There was people okay, that so were we didn't up. clip that out. Yeah, no, there were people that were coming up and uh, like, okay, where's that? And Bishop Soul's like, oh, it's over here. He's like, uh, well, can you point out? Because we're getting different like pushback from people back there. We were saying it's that, it's it's these chairs, but it's not these chairs. It was not well thought out. I don't know if they just didn't have enough space or what the whole whole deal was, but it was. And this chaos. is one of the things like people always want to try and get fancy whenever you get a big group of people together, but whenever you're doing minutia like that. Oh, man, it's demoralizing and yeah. frustrating for everybody. So that was on day one. Uh, we, don't, we don't have that. Among the first resolutions was a sadly familiar one, the closure of five churches. What should have been a simple, if sad, decision was complicated when conference attorney Matt Morley offered an amendment from the floor that the, quote, annual conference supports and encourages the bishop, district superintendents, and district boards of church location to utilize paragraph 2549.3b. Now, wait, so is this on Thursday? That I, That's the one that I couldn't find. I could not find the clip from, from Matt at all. So it it definitely wasn't on – I say it definitely was. I'm pretty sure it was on Friday. Okay. Um, but I couldn't find it at all. Well, okay, so this is the notorious paragraph which allows bishops to declare exigent circumstances and use local courts to seize the assets of a local church recently invoked by the Bishop of Eastern North Carolina to turn out members of Wilmington's Fifth Street United Methodist Church. We reported on that, by the way. The The details of that are scandalous. This is something that a lot of conferences are primed to do and could easily become the norm. So this, this provision of seizing a church's assets, monetary and real estate, um, has already been utilized. And now uh, this guy that works, what did it say what his rank was? He's like the conference lawyer, Matt Morley, conference attorney. Yeah, he offered this amendment from the floor Delegate pushback eventually prompted the bishop to have pro the proposed amendment withdrawn and the closure resolution passed cleanly. So what was the issue here was he, he, uh, he didn't even submit it in writing. Yeah, the, the that was all on Thursday, on, on Friday. So okay. all of the, yeah, all the pushback from there, they, they had some amendment on Thursday, but there was the business stuff was saved for like the last hour on Thursday. And then they, uh, did the majority of it on uh, uh, on Friday. Well, I've got I've got the actual so what happened was that night on the 18th they actually sent out the language. So they shut it down whenever it was proposed because it didn't have it, it wasn't put in writing. So they finally put it in writing and they emailed it out to everybody that night. And this was in May that they this May 18th. Was? Okay, so May 18th was the Thursday. Okay, so the, okay, this was on Thursday okay. that they they proposed this and it didn't fly because for some reason they didn't have the energy to actually go through the right process. So then they emailed it out to everybody. The problem was not everybody got the email. 
So this turned into a thing, <laughs> more of an issue than it should have been if they'd just done their due diligence. Um, so the next morning, Scholl apologized to the conference for complicating things, admitting that he had been behind the amendment. So this was not... Uh, this is the concern that a lot of people have, is that bishops are not supposed to be playing an active role in determining the, uh, the activity or content of what the conciliar body of the annual conference does. Like, he, he's just supposed to be a referee that keeps things, and then he's supposed to be guarding against heresy, which is something that none of the bishops are even interested in it at this point. But now he's revealing that he just put some other guy up to it, the conference attorney, uh, he apologized to the conference for complicating uh, things, admitting he had been behind the amendment, and explained that it would not apply to any disaffiliating churches or even the 50 engaged in a lawsuit to leave the conference. So yeah, this is one of those conferences, if you didn't know, where there's an NCLL class action lawsuit. 50 churches out of uh, how many does Eastern Pennsylvania have? You don't know off the top of your head, TJ? There were 393 at the end. 2021. There have been zero disaffiliations so far in that annual conference. Oh, they only have 393, is that what you said? They only at, at the end of 2021. Okay. I think he gives total stats at the end of this. They just closed five. So, um, but yeah, they don't have um, a lot of churches to begin with. 50, that is one sixth, that's what, uh, 17% of their churches have filed against the annual conference. This does not look good. So according to the WCA article, Moving the Needle, Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference uh, requires giving up all insurance local churches have paid premiums for through annual conference, leaving churches widely exposed with little to no options for coverage. $6,500 administrative fee, five grand to support the historic St. George's pro rata share of the Boy Scout settlement costs, an additional year of pay for pastor that doesn't disaffiliate with the church, plus paying two additional moves, missional transition support payment that includes up to 33% of the value of a church's non-real estate assets. So this is the reason why these 50 churches have filed against the annual conference. They have really piled on the expenses. So um, the amendment was put up on the screen. So yeah, as these 50 churches are trying to disaffiliate and they're in litigation, the bishop is putting other people up to this strong arm tactic of seizing assets. It, it's not a good look. The amendment was put up on the screen as a standalone resolution. Scholl called for a vote. Despite the fact that there was no particular person or committee named as a sponsor, it had not been submitted in writing to the delegates beforehand as conference rules require, nor had it been moved to the back of the line after all the previously submitted resolutions had been addressed. So all those things to point out, the bishop is uh, uh, behaving abusively. Uh, what, what was the executive overreach? Heavy-handed Episcopal oversight was what we're seeing here. We're seeing him preferencing his own stuff at the exclusion of what the conference needs to do. So this is the resolution. Um, the The conference already has authority to close churches in ex uh, in, in circumstances, ex exigent circumstances. Yeah. This is the word I was looking for. Yeah. Um, so they're putting forward a resolution to make sure that the conference is okay with it. Is basically what people were doing. You, there, there are multiple people that are like, you're getting up and like, wait, what's the point of this? Mm -hmm. The conference already has authority to do this. Why do we need to approve it? Right. Um, it's just a weird, like, we're going to do this 
Um, but we want to make sure that we can blame it on the, the whole annual conference yeah. as a whole so the leadership doesn't get blamed for yeah. that specific thing. It's oh, this, weird... is what, this is what they want me to do. Right. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm you not know, doing really, I could be more patient, and I want to be, but you know, this is what they've asked me to do here. So Yeah, it's a whole weird thing to begin with. Um, so, well, so the word, the word that keeps coming to me as I, I keep reading and watching Shul, it seems very manipulative and I want to be fair about the use of that word. I think any good leader manipulates to a degree. I think manipulation just means you, you, uh, affect people to act in ways they wouldn't otherwise. That's what we need leadership for. But it, the question is, what are his motivations as he manipulates the body um, and it, he doesn't always seem benevolent, um, and he does take this posture of listening and caring. Um, well, that's that's. We well, make he, he takes that posture and then doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird how he has a- energy for listening to people and acting like he understands, mm-hmm. and then just moving on in oh, the yeah. direction that and he's got. And we're going to see some of that. Let's let's watch a uh, uh, an example of how he kind of deals with people. This is, I thought it was the struggle session set up and end. We'll, we'll see which, this is day one, or at least we got it labeled day one. A lot of, a lot of fears, anxiety. So I just wanted you all to have the opportunity to share with each other and share with me how we can work together that together we might support each other, we might affirm each other, we might disagree without being disagreeable. So I just brought a chair here and I'm just gonna sit down and invite you to have a conversation with each other and share your hopes, your concerns, your fears, so that we can get them out into the space and the air and support each other and work with each other. So we've got microphones around the room, and because we're not in the business session yet, if there are visitors who would like to go and say something at the microphone, we'll welcome you to do that as well. There's a lot for us to talk about. So we just jumped ahead, and Um, now we're at the tail end of the struggle session. But what you've demonstrated is that we can have conversation with each other, share what's on our hearts, mutually respect each other, support each other. And quite frankly, we're all at the same place. We're just trying to figure this out. And um, I certainly don't have all the answers. The answers are in this room. The answers are in our congregations. The answers are in our communities. And we just have to keep listening and stay in conversation. So I, I'm ready to cut it off there. I realize we have a little bit more there. It's not really anything. He just says, oh, you guys have a really big heart. So, I mean, there are a number of things worth remarking on. I want to start on the tail end. This language of... Well, we didn't really explain what this is. So this is the first day, Thursday. Um, towards the end, there's like a two hours left in the session. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just basically gets up and, and wants everybody to have a, have a discussion and invites people to come and, and talk to the, 
talk to each other, but like... Well, yeah. and I've called it a struggle session a couple yeah. of times. A struggle session is is something I know of in the context of the American Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, whenever there were a lot of people sympathetic to communism. You have these communal living situations where you would have what were called struggle se- sessions, and everybody would get together and just vent on each other. And that's essentially what, what happened here. It didn't get real intense because it was day one, but there was no structure to it whatsoever. Yeah, no. Different people got up with just random stuff and vented. When you heard he even asked for like, oh, if you're a guest, just get up and talk. Like, huh. So Scholl is, is creating this impression that he's open, he's available to people, but this is a three-day conference where there's a budget that needs to get approved. They are proposing uh, all kinds of legislation, a big sea change in how they're doing business as a, 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 a conference, and he's spending the first day taking this posture of being open and allowing people to vent. But what he's doing is, first off, wasting time. Spoiler alert, they do not get the business done that needs to get done at this annual conference. Uh, And then he's trying to shoehorn in all this other stuff over the next two days that they don't have time for, and they call him out on on really not making time or space for this. Now, this, this other one that you clipped up, TJ, was this the guy with the seven pages... Um, yeah, there's some clergy member, I believe he's a clergy member, um, that has objections to everything. Um, it seems like that they were going to propose in the business uh, dealings. Um, well, let's come back to that. I want to read this paragraph um, by uh, DePaulo, um, because it's, it's following up on the bishop uh, inappropriately bringing this legislation. When a delegate rose to raise a point of order, the bishop passed over it and moved to a vote. So this is a theme as well. The bishop, um, uh, a lot of people had an issue with him not calling on people um, for selfish reasons that are, they imputed. Uh, there's no way to know his mind. It passed, though not by a large margin. Most delegates probably accepted Scholl's assurances that this would only, if ever, be applied in extreme circumstances. So if we've already gotten too scatterbrained, this is the uh, exigent circumstances initiative. So he got his way, but it was under these assurances that he may or may not have pulled. But he also admitted that the two congregations, which had been stonewalling pastoral appointments, prompting the whole affair, had backed off and submitted. So why was it necessary? My suspicion... DePaulo says, when, as I expect, the 2024 General Conference fails to protect traditionalist churches as leaders have promised, more will seek an exit from the denomination. Then Bishop Scholl can say his conference is behind him when he uses this paragraph to seize property and money from congregants who have sacrificed for decades to maintain their local ministry. So DePaulo thinks that he's looking a couple years down the road as he is planning on getting more authoritarian. Also on Friday, a new strategic plan or direction was presented with Bishop Scholl and plan formulators sitting in a row of chairs, talk show style, to discuss its importance for a full hour. And this is one of the things that's really frustrating about annual conferences in general. They'll submit a pre-conference workbook a lot of the time. People don't read it, and they know that. 
they haven't done the hard work of including people on what's going on, so they try and do all that work at the annual conference. And you can either do it in a business-like way, answering questions and getting down to the nitty-gritty of it, or you can do this kind of emotive, relational thing where you sit down and you have a conversation. And you see Shoal manipulating people in this way, this this having this conversational thing. He gets up and down from... He'll, he'll step in and out of his role of facilitator to just preaching... And um, it, it does not have the desired effect on this body. And I, I don't really know why. Um, the Oklahoma Annual Conference, the, the bishop, uh, Jimmy Nunn, is not that charismatic. He's not nearly as—he uh, doesn't have as much energy for manipulation as Scholl does. And yet, if, if Nunn makes any kind of appeal, the conference is with him. You know, they, He doesn't have to work hard at all. Scholl, they seem to have his number there. They seem—I mean, he— he seems, if I didn't know he had an agenda, I would want to go with him. I would want to trust him. Uh, but the thing is, they seem to know his track record. And one of the things that um, I heard from a, a delegate who was there was, um, even as tense as things are between right and left in our denomination right now, what Scholl ended up effectively doing was uniting the right and the left in distrust and resentment of him, which is quite a feat. Um also on Friday, oh wait, I already got into the new strategic plan. They talked for a full hour. When Delegate Dan Meter came out to call the question, the bishop explained the plan was not yet properly before delegates as a motion. After 10 more minutes of questions and comments, Scholl recalled Meter to make his motion. Did you recall, record that? Yeah, I've got it where he uh, he brings it up and then uh, where he calls him back after the questions. Okay, with. okay, so but that's on day two, Yes, and we still have a clip from day one. So we're yeah. going to come back to that. And that's fun and underhanded and weird. Um, we had just every conference has one or two or sometimes three or four of these. This is an older guy who's just going to unload on the bishop, and it's kind of cathartic, and you just kind of feel sorry for him. Um, and it has more to do with theology. Of course, I mean, as I said, Scholl, he does have, he is far left. Um, whenever General Conference 2019 happened, he was very clear that he was not going to conform to the will of the general conference. He had a, a plan that he pushed on his annual conference that they would be an open rebellion against the general conference. Um, so he does lean left, but also he he's an institutionalist, and he seems to have an ego issue where he just, he's got his plan and he's going to do it his way, and other people are, are there to make it happen. Um, not everybody's happy about it. This guy... Well, he picks on both the institution angle and the theological angle, so have fun. If you'd state your name and church and uh, purpose, reason for coming to the mic. Thank you, Bishop. My name is Charles Hansom from Richmond United Methodist Church uh, up on the northern tip of Northampton County by uh, Delaware Water Gap. And uh, I wrote a seven-page uh, indictment of, of what we're doing. And Excuse I'm, me, sir. I, I, I'm sure the bishop is not interested in me reading a seven-page indictment. Excuse me, sir. Yes, sir. You, you have the opportunity to speak for or against I'm the motion? I'm speaking against. You're speaking against the motion before us. That's correct. Okay. You may make uh, that. The, the seven pages that I wrote, I gave to three clergy, and the Episcopalian clergy said, you got the substance. The priest told me that I should present it with love, and the Methodist minister said, the bishop will never let you read it. So I have this two-pager that I'm going to read once. Then I don't have to object to any other resolutions 
They're all here. I read the annual conference workbook, watched videos on BreakthroughMinistries.org, and studied the UMCOR website. I object to Resolution 2023-03, affirming that several churches must be closed. Resolution 2023-4, allowing five churches to leave the United Methodist Church. Resolution 2023-7, the disbursement of disaffiliation funds. I take issue with the understanding, with the underlying decisions and reasoning of the hierarchy of the church that have made it necessary for congregations, ministers, and churches to undertake these momentous decisions which necessitate the aforementioned resolutions. I approve and support page 103 of the annual conference related to revision 2023 processes and terms for Eastern PA congregations seeking to disaffiliate under paragraph 2553. However, my support also heightens my concern for the survival of the church as the need to extend the disaffiliation is apparent. Many more congregations and ministers have decided to leave based upon biblical and moral grounds that appears to be disregarded by the church hierarchy. I have been told there are 50 churches preparing to disenfranchise and 100 willing to litigate against the hierarchy and the decisions being made. In addition to the laity just up and leaving to find a more biblical experience of worship, if true, it appears to be the opening of a floodgate that will destroy the United Methodist Church. I quote the following excerpts from the conference workbook that indicates to me what John Wesley's church, where it's headed. Camp and Retreat Ministries, 16 persons, a quarter of which shall be persons of racial ethnic background. Conference Committee on Leadership, one clergy and one layperson from each district, five members of diverse racial ethnic backgrounds and gender inclusiveness. 30 seconds. EPA Rapid Response Teams on Immigration, 20 members selected for their interest in justice. There's more of that, but he's not going to let me finish. So I'll move to the end. Excuse me, sir. It's not <coughs> me. It's our rules. I understand. On the UMCOR website, there's a quote. Quote, we affirm moves by the Biden administration to rebuild a humane immigration policy. Unquote. Ten seconds. I could not find one word in all of the documents I have read that refers to any anti-abortion position, counseling against sex outside marriage, your, condemning your deviant, up, immoral sir. sex, Cautioning drug against drug use, time is up. contemning the baby mama fatherless household problem. Please turn off microphone of one. He he did it. He did his best. Yeah. So did you say he he prays after he, this? Yeah, he prays as a short prayer. I don't know if you want to include it or not. It's just he he's kind of takes. He got a, a bit. Of, to I think it. he got a little pray. frazzled. He does end up praying. Yeah, no, he's just taking forever to get to it. God, may our conversation with each other be with you. May the things we say, may the things we share, See your image in everybody who's sitting here. And that we share in ways 
that bring honor and glory to your name. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, and that's it. So, uh, I mean, Shoal... This is, this is the first pushback that he's got, so this is day, day one again. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, they had their struggle session. They've got one hour of business that they're going to get at. Um, they just had a terrible time trying to set the bar. It's chaos, um, and then like this guy gets up and he, he. And we don't know what what's the motion that he's speaking against. Do we? Know um, he's well. He's talking about all of it. So he tries to throw it and all. He, he says right, right there at the beginning, "I'm gonna I'm gonna put it all in this seven page thing, um, mm-hmm. but I'm not gonna read the seven page thing because he won't let me." Um, so I'm going to put it in two pages and I'm going to object to all of it. So I don't have See, to get and up it's and so unfortunate because he's got some good points in there. Oh yeah. If but he could just it's like, not germane. If, you know, if, if he could break it up and then do it like, okay, well, there's this one motion. Let's tack this one motion. Well, see, and I doubt, I mean, I doubt it was even germane to the motion. I mean, in the end, he's just saying, like, we have all this virtue signaling that we're on the cultural left. Yeah, he, he was trying to throw it all together in, in two pages and was skipping around those two pages because he only had three minutes and he spent the first 30 seconds He had seconds a diatribe. Yeah. He wanted everybody to know, and right. he was just taking his moment. Yeah, that's just not the way things are done. And then it's just this self-reinforcing thing, like, Bishop isn't going to let me read it. Well, the bishop lets him read it because it's... Robert's rules of order. You just get these people that that want to do religion, that want to be a prophet, and then you put them in Robert's rules of order with someone that you know doesn't care about you and the way you see things. I mean, that's the thing. Like this man who got up, he understands himself to be correcting an apostate church, which would glorify God. But then uh, Bishop Scholl has is trying to get people to like honor each other so that they don't say things that offend each other. But from conservative perspectives, you have to offend people when they're dancing with the devil so that they stop dancing with the devil. And this guy just hasn't given up on him yet. He says on the front end, I've given up on you, but then he tries anyway because he is trying to provide a, an opportunity for repentance. And of course, Scholl isn't going to uh, take that opportunity. He doesn't think he's wrong. Liberals don't think they're wrong. And uh, going back to the first video clip, he says, may we continue listening. The thing is, we've been listening to each other for a long time. It's not that we're he- not hearing each other. It's that we genuinely disagree. And so uh, General Conference 2019 was supposed to be, we're done listening. We're going to choose a path forward. Here's the path forward. Despite all this institutional opposition and manipulation, we picked it. And then they just said, you didn't listen enough. <laughs> you didn't make the right decision. And that's that's a terrible way to be in relationship. There comes a certain point where continuing to listen rather than enact the duty to which you've been entrusted is bad. It's it's a betrayal of the trust that's been given you. So I I I think it was I think he set it up irresponsibly. I talked about the time waste on the front end. I don't think I talked about I did bring it back to Bishop Mueller, Mueller in Arkansas, how he used all this emotive language to get people, you know, they would say, both bishops said, you know, let's behave respectably, let's honor one another, but in the same breath, summoning this emotion, emotionalism uh, from the people, and then this is, this is what he continually does, is he brings out the emotion, then people behave badly, and then he names it and he prays against them. So it's this, 
this posture where he gets to act righteous and like a loving father and facilitator when he's actually facilitating and to a degree causing the disunity and anxiety in the body. Um, and so he gets to to easily um, kind of redirect it on to these kind of imbalanced people, kind of, you know, not not politically savvy people when he's the guy who's actually really potentially harming the body by putting people up to uh, 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 power grab legislation like we already talked about with the exigent circumstances thing, and when he's trying to shoehorn massive uh, programmatic sea change uh, stuff. So anyway, I think I got to go put my kids down. So this is just day one. There are two more days to cover. We need to talk about this strategic plan that he had in place. We have a lot more clips to show, so TJ and I are going to sit down again sometime soon. I don't know when. We'll do days two and three. And um, anyway, in the meantime, since we're doing a slow rollout, if you know stuff pertaining to Eastern Pennsylvania that is relevant for telling the story of what transpired at the last conference session, you can email me at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. We can read your, your feedback. We like to know what we're talking about. Right now we're doing like big picture theological stuff, but there are partic- if there are particulars to this conference, we like to know them. And if, if there's anything hidden that needs to be brought into the light, that's kind of why we started this whole thing. So um, if you know anybody who's in eastern Pennsylvania and would enjoy seeing this kind of breakdown, go ahead and share it with them. And uh, we appreciate all the support and engagement. Uh, may God bless his church, and may we be stronger for bringing things out into the light. All right, we'll see you next time.